I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grayson. Thank you so much for being here with me today. We are at the second to last show of this first season. And I have some exciting personal news to share that very much ties in with what we've been doing here on the show with rethinking our modern industrialized existence, uncovering a way to live that's more aligned with our biological, our evolutionary norms so that we can hopefully live more authentically human lives. I'm not quite ready to share that news yet. I've been finalizing some plans over here. So be sure to tune into next week's episode where I will share that exciting news. All right. We have an amazing show for you today. This is one I've been wanting to share with you for months now with historian Jacqueline H. Wolf, who is the author of a forthcoming book from Johns Hopkins University Press about the history of C-sections in the United States called Cesarean Section, an American History of Risk technology and consequence. And in this book, Dr. Wolf, who is currently professor of the history of medicine in the Department of Social Medicine at Ohio Ohio University, she explores how in less than the span of a century, we went from cesarean section being a deadly, virtually unheard of last ditch surgery to a world where one in three American women now has major abdominal surgery in lieu of birth. This is one of the most riveting books I have read in the past year. It's an academic book, but it deserves to be at the forefront of mainstream media. I was lucky enough to receive an advanced copy of the manuscript, and Jackie and I recorded this interview last fall, back when she was still in the final editing stages of the book. Jackie and I have actually known each other for a few years now. She was featured in my book, Unlatched. Some of you may remember, she was the historian who had uncovered that death by artificial infant feeding was actually one of the great public health epidemics of the turn of the 20th century, something that had really been forgotten before Jackie's work on the history of birth and breastfeeding practices in the United States. So if you, like I am, are fascinated by American history, by birth and breastfeeding and women's lives in times gone by, Or if you're a medical professional or even an expecting parent, you are not going to want to miss this episode. If you can't tell already, Jackie is someone whose work I deeply respect and admire. She's an unbelievably compelling speaker. Not surprising since she also happens to host two radio shows for her local NPR affiliate in Ohio. And I will put the links to those on the show notes page at jennifergrayson.com, along with some some of Jackie's other books. I'm going to stop talking now and just let you hear from Jackie, but I am so interested to hear what you think of the show. You can let me know what you think over on Instagram. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. Thank you all for your listenership, for your support. Please don't forget to leave an iTunes rating and review if you haven't already. That's really going to help with bringing you more incredible guests for season two. Enjoy this episode with Jackie, and I will see you next Monday with the final episode of the season. Jackie, I want to start out today just by asking you, why was it so important to take on a book about the history of C-section? This book I know has been years in the making. Why write this now at this juncture in not only our American history, but our human history? 
Well, I'll tell you what got me interested in the topic. When I was working on my second book, which is a, um, a history of the use of obstetric anesthesia and changing views of labor pain over about a 200-year period, I brought everything up to the present in the very last chapter. And the two salient characteristics of childbirth today are high epidural anesthesia use and a high cesarean section rate. About one in three women in the U.S. Um, have a cesarean section to give birth, have major abdominal surgery to give birth. And by then, um, when, I, when I wrote that small section in my second book about cesarean section, by then I had read, oh my goodness, I think I must have looked at easily many hundreds, if not a couple of thousand thousands of accounts of uh, childbirth in, in case books, in midwifery logs, in hospital records. And I knew that about 5% of births run into trouble. And I'm talking about midwives' logs back in the 18th century. I'm talking about hospital records in the 1930s and everything in between. And doctors would verify that too in journal articles. They would always refer to approximately 5% of human births actually need medical help. And knowing that and actually seeing the records that verified that, that's what got me interested in how in the modern era can we perceive so many human births as running into trouble that we have to perform major abdominal surgery in order to make that birth happen? How did we end up perceiving birth in that way? And that's what got me interested in writing this particular book. So when did C-sections first begin? Not only in America, but even in, did you look all the way back in antiquity? I didn't. I didn't. This this is strictly United States history. So I started with the first cesarean section that appeared in a medical journal, which which occurred in 1827. It was written up in a journal in 1830. But in, to answer your question, oh my goodness, there are there are references in antiquity to cesarean sections, and often it was done um, to for. Um, in, um, for inheritance purposes, because because if the mother could actually live long enough to give birth, then the inheritance would go through her if she died. I, I can't even remember because that's not I don't study medieval history, but um, it was more done through if the infant survived, if the mother survived, that dictated inheritance patterns. So um Cesareans, there have been reference to cesarean sections for many, many. I mean, there was even rumor for a long time that Julius Caesar uh, was born by cesarean section. And supposedly that's where the word cesarean came from. That's a myth. It's not true. Oh, that's what I was going to ask you about. OK, tell us more yeah. about that. It's not true because Julius Caesar, Caesar's mother, um, women didn't survive a cesarean section, and she she lived many decades after his birth. Um, so that's that's really a myth. And the word cesarean really comes from the Latin word meaning to cut, um, and that's where the word comes from. It's not a reference to Julius Caesar, but that's how that's how long cesareans have been performed. It's it, it really um, we're talking about you know easily way back in antiquity, way back in medieval history. Right. And it's so interesting. You, one of the things you talk about in the book, which most of us in the modern era forget, is that C-sections, you know, they may have saved the life of an infant and the mother may have died, but then that infant likely wouldn't have survived because in an era, well, go ahead and explain it, Jackie. 
Well, the focus of cesarean section really was um, in the 19th century and for most of the, for at least half of the 20th century, the focus was on saving the mother's life. Um, and especially in the 19th century, exactly as you say, um, they did it as a last ditch effort to possibly save a mother. Uh, we do know the records, with the records are very clear, through 1871 in the U.S., more than half the women who had cesareans died. So it was really avoided. Doctors called it sacrificial midwifery, and they only did it if they were certain that without it, the mother absolutely would die. Because if she had a 50-50 chance of living with a cesarean, then maybe they would perform it, um, but usually they would try to avoid it at all costs. And for exactly the reason that you mentioned, they didn't do it to save the life of an infant, because if the mother died, the infant was going to die. I mean, we're talking about an era where if an infant wasn't breastfed, it was a death sentence. There was no pasteurized milk. There was no, you know, there was no uh, way to give um, infants palatable food that would keep them alive. Babies relied on breast milk. So without a mother or without a willing wet nurse, without a will or a generous neighbor willing to breastfeed a baby whose mother died, there was no point in saving the baby because if the mother died, the baby was going to die within weeks or months anyway. So what changed? You said 1827 was the year of the first American C-section, right? Well, it wasn't the year of the first American C-section. It was the year of the first one recorded, recorded. in the journal. Of course, right. And and as right. you are a historian, you you only can show what the records also show. Um, right. Right. And, so, and, and there are stories about cesareans before 1827, but there's no medical record of it. Okay. So, but what, and what are some of those stories? I mean, what, what changed that made this even a consideration really for the first time in human history? Well, I can tell you the story of the first cesarean, uh, the, the story that was in the medical journal, because in, those, in, the, in that era, when they wrote up a cesarean section, first of all, it was written up because the doctor was excited about it. It was something that he had never, never witnessed and never done himself. So it was something that they wanted to talk about. And in every one that was written up, uh, the mother lived because that's why they wanted to tell the story that the mother actually survived. Often the baby didn't survive, but the mother survived. Um, so they wanted to talk about what they had done, maybe to give other doctors a heads up on, on how to save mothers. Um, but we also know from the the one uh Oh, he was he was a quite a quite a, an interesting guy, a statistician who actually collected stories about cesarean sections. Um, and we we know from him. That's why we know how many women died. Um, but for the most part, doctors really avoided it, if at all possible. The very first cesarean, it's worth going into because it was it was prototypical of cesareans of, of the 19th century in many ways. In other ways, it was unusual. Um, in the in the few ways it was unusual, first of all, the mother lived um, and most more than 50 percent of the mothers died. So in this case, the mother lived. She was also white. And most of the women before 1871 who had cesareans were women of color. The majority were, which is really quite unusual. Um because only 12 to 14 percent of the population at the time was African-American. So when you have more than half the women having cesareans in the 19th century or prior to 1871, um, you know that race was a factor there, that doctors were more willing to perform this major abdominal surgery on women of color rather than white women. Um, and part of the reason for that was that these are women who did not have control over their own uh, medical decisions, 
right? That's that's absolutely right. It's very clear in the medical record that if a woman was white, she was consulted as were every as was everyone else gathered at the bedside, whether it was midwives, whether it was friends, whether it was neighbors, um, any relatives there. They were all consulted. Everyone had to agree there would be a cesarean section. If the woman was not white, um, certainly in before the Civil War. The assumption was virtually all of them, um, all of the women of color were slaves, and they had no voice. It was their owner who decided. And in that era, too, I mean, think about it. Um, often for a slave owner, they might very well put more value on the life of an infant than they would on the life of the woman who they had enslaved. And in that case, if the baby survived, they probably could force another woman to be the baby's wet nurse. Um, so there, w- there were probably many different reasons why most of the women who had the majority of women who had cesareans before 1871 were um, women of color, and most of them were slaves. Right. So, and and so, tell us about some of those stories. You started to tell us about those first C-sections and how remarkably just unusual it was. Well, the the very first C-section recorded in a medical journal. Um, described, it, it was almost um, like like a dark and stormy night. It was almost like a, like a very macabre novel, the way the doctor wrote about it. Um, there was a terrible storm going on. This was in the southwest corner of Ohio, near Cincinnati, but in a very, very small town. Um, all cesarean sections in that era were performed in a women's, woman's home, just as um, virtually every birth occurred in a woman's home. Um, and that's therefore cesareans were as well. Uh, midwives were attending this woman, and that's the way every birth started out. It would have been very unusual to call in a doctor at all. And doctors normally didn't att- attend births. The only reason a midwife would call in a doctor was that she wasn't allowed by law to use forceps. So she would call a doctor in if she was running into trouble and needed someone to apply forceps. So this doctor was called in. There was a terrible storm. Uh, the woman was living in what the doctor described as very poor housing. It was a log cabin that wasn't very well built, and wind was coming in through the cracks in the walls. And the woman's neighbors had gathered as well, and they were desperately trying to hold candles in front of, I'm sorry, blankets in front of candles um, to keep everyone from going into complete darkness because it was the middle of the night. And the doctor was very annoyed with the midwives because they just kept telling him that the pains seemed very severe, but she wasn't making any progress. And that to him was no information at all. Um, But he quickly discovered that the midwives were right, that the woman was in in the middle of a very, very strenuous labor, but her cervix wasn't dilating. Um, And ultimately, after hours and hours, he even tried to call in uh, other colleagues to help him because just like he made fun of the midwives at first for calling him in, he ended up trying to call people in, but there was flooding all over. They couldn't get there. And he finally decided that the woman was about to die. And her only hope was a cesarean section and everyone agreed to his plan. And he um, performed the surgery. Now, this is 1827. And it wasn't until 1847 that doctors had anesthesia. Wow. So this this was done without anesthesia. And the doctor at first, after after opening, and he, he describes how he did the surgery. I mean, he did it from her um, umbilicus all the way down. So a very long horizontal cut. He attempted to remove the fetus, but the mother at that point 
begged him to stop. Um, she could not stand the pain. And he ended up removing the fetus in pieces from her womb. Uh, she survived. Now, she also, he described her as obese. Um, my, and, and the baby is being uncommonly large. So my guess is she was suffering from gestational diabetes. The baby was probably huge. When they say uncommonly large in the 19th, uh, 19th century, they're not referring to a 9 or 10-pound baby. They're usually referring to a 12 or 14-pound fetus which is why he couldn't he couldn't lift he couldn't get the baby out of out of the womb without the mother begging him to stop um the mother survived the surgery and um a few weeks later he examined her and couldn't find any evidence that she even had a cervical opening at all and he he ended the article by wondering how she got pregnant in the first place because obviously <laughs> you can't become pregnant without a cervical opening. Right, right. Um, so um, that's the way it ends, kind of without explanation that she and she apparently lived for many decades afterwards. There's no ex there's no report of her having other children after that. Um, so that was that was the very first story. And the reason it's so representative of those 19th century stories is, first of all, it took a very unusual physical circumstance for a doctor to consider a cesarean, something as odd as no discern discernible cervical opening or a pelvis that was so malformed. Um, and usually there are th the statistician I referred to collected all this data, collected pictures, uh, photographs of women who'd had cesareans, and many of them were what he described as dwarfs. Women of very, very small stature with very malformed pelvises, some of whom had rickets in childhood, some of whom were unable to walk because of their malformed pelvises. They had had they had to have cesareans. So it took a very unusual physical anomaly to, to have a doctor even think about performing the surgery. Right. And, and it's so interesting when you say pelvic abnormality, because I think in today's world, we use that term, maybe not abnormality, but there is, we think of women as having all sorts of issues that doctors will tell you about that you may not be able to give birth to your child, that like your hips might be too narrow, or that you have all sorts of, I, I don't even know, but like back then, when you're talking about abnormality, like you said, these were grave conditions. These were women with two true structural abnormalities. Yes, we're we're talking exactly. We're talking about eye popping abnormalities. Another one would have been um, an extraordinarily large fibroid tumor in the in the uterus. And I'm when I say extraordinarily large, I'm talking um, way like twice as big as football size. I mean, really large tumor, something so extraordinary. That's what prompted cesarean section. Or maybe having syphilis, that would also uh, prompt a cesarean if if your uterus, what your uterus, your vagina, your cervix were so scarred by syphilis that you couldn't give birth. Or if you had tried to have an abortion with a corrosive substance, um, that could also um, possibly lead um, in another birth to, to a cesarean because you were, again, had a corrosive of substance that's so scarred your reproductive organs that you couldn't give birth. Yes, it would take, I can't emphasize enough, it would take a major physical anomaly to prompt a cesarean. Right, which just underscores really how differently people viewed birth back then. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think we in the modern world think about birth as 
something to fear. You know, it's something filled with so much risk. And yet when I looked at these accounts, and by the way, your book is filled with just so many fascinating stories um, that really bring you back into that time period and imagine what it was like. But how was birth viewed back then versus now? Because, you know, these are scary stories, but this was not the norm back then. Yeah. I mean, birth certainly could be viewed as, um, you know, women might be afraid of the pain and you read some you read some accounts like that. But for the most part, birth was a social event. Um, women look forward to it. Um, women had attended births very often before they gave birth themselves. So they knew what to expect. It was a time for women to gather and help a woman through birth and learn about birth themselves. And some of the women would be real experts. In fact, most midwives were lay midwives. They learned through attending births until they became really expert at it. Um, and it was a gathering, you know, you look forward to it. You ate, you talked, it took a long time for a baby to be born. So, it was a social event for women only. Um, and it was in that sense, it was almost a quasi public event that um, women would do it to help each other and they would look forward to it. So in many ways, it was something that was looked on as an everyday experience. Um, doctors were not trained in medical school or even through apprenticeships to um, they didn't really know much about birth. Um, and that was pretty scandalous right into the 20th century that obstetrics was a neglected subject. So it was mainly midwives who, who were they were the experts and they showed up and they had a doctor come only if they needed the extraordinary help that I described earlier. Um, it was interesting, you described before that some doctors will look at a woman and warn her, well, your hips might be too slim to accommodate uh, a child. Um, this, this is something that you're absolutely right about that. And that's why it, it's important that people understand how extraordinary cesarean sections were right through the 1950s in the United States. Because the assumption was that women would be able to give birth vaginally. And the human pelvis... It, you know, there's no way you can look at a pelvis or measure a pelvis um, and decide if a woman can give birth because the pelvis, the female pel pelvis is very malleable. It stretches, it moves, and especially with the hormones of labor, it becomes even more malleable. And the reason babies aren't born with their skull closed is because the skull can collapse in the birth canal and make it even more likely that a, that a vaginal birth can occur because it's, you know, you can squeeze a baby's skull because as everyone who has held a small baby knows, the top of the skull doesn't, doesn't close for many months after the birth. Um, and that's the reason why. So that, so not only is the, is the pelvis malleable, but the baby's head is malleable as well. So, um, you know, we wouldn't be overpopulating the earth right now if human birth didn't work pretty well the vast majority of the time. Right. And I, one of the amazing things I remember from your book was the account of there being a twin monster, I think that was the term. A it, double it, monster. A double, a double monster. monster. Yeah, a double, fact, that it was possible to deliver a, even a double monster, which, explain what a double monster is, Jackie. Well, that was the 19th century pejorative for conjoined twins. And so, you know, doctors would even say that, that you know, vaginal birth is such a likelihood that even with the quote double monster so if even if you're giving birth to conjoined twins that is readily doable vaginally so um, and yes I included that in the book to let everyone know how much every everyone just assumed 
that a vaginal birth was going to happen. Now, that's not to say that births didn't go wrong. That's not to say that mothers didn't die. That's not to say that babies didn't die, but in much lower numbers than anyone imagines. Um, you know, people think of birth as being so deadly in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, but actually the maternal mortality rate was actually higher in the U.S. in the early 1930s than it was in the 18th century. Um, we know from midwives' logs, and we this is a completely unacceptable maternal mortality rate, Certainly in the certainly in, in the modern era, but we know from those logs that about one half of one percent of women uh, died either during childbirth or shortly after childbirth. But you know, when I ask medical students, you know, what they think, how many women do they think died in the in the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century? And they'll guess ten percent, fifty percent, thirty percent. It was one one half of one percent which really today would be scandalously high, but still nowhere near what we thought. And this was an era, remember, no antibiotics, no ability to transfuse blood. And even today, if women die from childbirth, that's what they, they die of hemorrhage, or they die of an infection that can't be treated for the most part. So there was no way to treat those two side effects of birth that are now readily treatable. Right. And so, and by contrast, what is the maternal mortality rate today? Well, in the United States, um, it actually is much higher than it was just 20 years ago. Um, the last rates were 23.8 deaths of women per 100,000 births. Um, and we had it down to about eight deaths in 100,000 births a couple of decades ago. And we're up to up now to 23.8 deaths. We have the highest maternal death rate of any wealthy country in the world. And so what is happening? Well, um, I know that's a complex uh, question, but, uh, you know, you said you mentioned in the past just a couple decades alone. So what has happened just in the past two decades? And, and you also mentioned, sorry to blow this on, but also a very high mortality rate in the 1930s. So I would love to t go back as well and talk about what happened there. Well, let me let me talk about the 1930s first. Yeah. What, hap what happened in the 1930s is that that's when birth began to move to the hospital in earnest. And before then, any woman who possibly could gave birth at home. It was only impoverished women, single women who'd been abandoned by their families. It was it was it was shameful. It was stigmatizing to give birth in a hospital. Um but as birth began to move to the hospital for many different reasons, um, one of the problems was was that women weren't separated, uh, laboring women weren't separated from the wards where people had serious illness. So the hospital was the last place in the world you wanted to give birth. I mean, the you know infection was rampant, um, very easy to get sick, very easy to be exposed to a life-threatening infection, and that's why the maternal death rate went up. It wasn't until maternity wards were separated from the rest of the hospital or hospitals opened up that strictly devoted themselves only to laboring women, that hospital birth became um, uh, markedly safer than it was in the 1930s. In the 1930s, um, that's why the death rate went up so much, because more and more women were going into the hospital. And that was largely because obstetric residencies were, um, as doctors began to be trained in obstetrics, for the first time, residencies were hospital-based rather than doctors just going out to homes and learning that way, um, to following medical students following doctors around to homes. It was a lot easier to do it in a central place. Um, 
so that was one of the reasons that births started to move to the hospital more rapidly. By nineteen by 1939, 50% of all births in the U.S. occurred in the hospital. Before then, the majority of them um, occurred at home. And really, the vast majority, even in the early 20th century, occurred at home. Um, and then it very rapidly moved to the hospital, very rapidly. But that's why we saw the, the, the spike in deaths in the 1930s, scandalously high, they were referred to, because births were occurring in the hospital and women were getting infections that couldn't be cured. Yeah. And you also mentioned a really interesting thing, too, which I was completely unaware of until I read your book. You said just now that doctors began to be trained in obstetrics. And so I didn't know that obstetrics and gynecology were two completely different disciplines until fairly recently. So tell us about that, because that was just blew me away. And I think it's important to talk about as we talk about what led to the rise in C-sections. Yeah, we think of obstetrics and gynecology as an as a, just a natural specialty that, of course, they would go together. Right, but women's you, vaginas just the group it all together. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's women. It's all about women's bodies. Right. So you know, of course, they should go together. But if you think about it, um, gynecology was actually born out of. Um, major reproductive surgeries. Um, One of the common conditions uh, that women had, especially slave women, um, who were not tended very well uh, during labors, they would have what were called vesicovaginal fistulas, which was a horrible condition where the, the bladder, a urine would leak into the vagina or feces from the rectum would leak into the vagina because uh, because if labors were too strenuous, too long, not well attended um, by midwives, um, often that that skin would um, you know they would get fistulas and the and the and the uh, there would no longer be those those organs would no longer be separated. Um, so gynecology was really born of trying to repair those those devastating fistulas. And also, so it, it was to treat uh, to treat women who had those fistulas. It was also to treat um, upper class white women who had in the 19th century or what, was, what would be diagnosed today probably is depression. But um, what was then diagnosed as hysteria or neurasthenia, mental conditions which were thought to arise from the reproductive organs. So often if women were severely depressed or exhibited mental illness, their ovaries would be removed um, as, as part of a cure that was very common. And um, so that was the history of gynecology, that, it, that it, arose, it was a surgical specialty that arose from reproductive surgeries. Obstetrics, on the other hand, was about, not about pathology, but it was about understanding a physiology, understanding a naturally occurring physiological activity, which was labor and birth. So to conjoin those two, as, as natural as it seems today, really changed birth completely. Because what it took was, it took the pathological, surgical sensibility of the gynecologist and what had been the physiological sensibility of how do you nurture um, a natural, normal activity. And the analogy was kind of like digestion or respiration. Um, And you can join those two. And what ultimately happened was the sensibility of the surgeon kind of took over what had been the sensibility of the doctors who were interested in childbirth. Right. Because in a lot of ways, before obstetrics became a specialty, there wasn't really a whole lot for obstetricians or someone who would call themselves an obstetrician to do. Right? In fact, in fact, very few doctors were even 
vaguely interested in obstetrics. Um, it was kind of insulting for, to them to even think that they would even be bothered to attend a birth. Um, medical schools, first of all, completely ignored um, obstetrics. It was one of the great scandals uh, when uh, Alexander Fleming, the Fleming Report, came out. That was a report that came out in 1910 um, about the state of med medical education in the United States. And it was scathing. Uh, more than half the medical schools in the U.S. closed in the wake of that report because they were doing such a terrible job training physicians. But the most uh, vehement criticism in that report was for the lack of training in obstetrics. It was so serious that doctors literally would graduate from medical school, never having attended a birth and not even understanding female anatomy. Uh, there are accounts of doctors who would go to a birth and try to pry a woman's cervix open, not understanding that the cervix opens itself and they just have to sit there and wait. Um, there's an account of a doctor who was called in to attend a birth and thought what he was viewing in the woman's vagina was a gigantic tumor and the baby couldn't possibly be born. And it turned out that it was the baby. There was no tumor. I mean, that's how ignorant doctors were of childbirth. When I say they knew nothing, I really mean literally they knew nothing. Um, so the doctors who were interested in obstetrics were kind of denigrated because it was considered, you know, what's the big deal? It's a, it's a natural occurrence. It's kind of like, you know, you wouldn't need a doctor to supervise someone breathing, why would you need a doctor to supervise a, uh, a childbirth? So it, you know, it, it was neglected, completely neglected. And it took a few really fine obstetricians. The most famous was J. Richard Williams at Johns Hopkins and Joseph DeLee at Northwestern University in Chicago, who um, kind of took it upon themselves, especially DeLee, to train medical students. DeLee opened a uh, home birthing service in Chicago where he offered his services for free, mainly to train medical students. And anytime a doctor went out from his dispensary to attend a home birth, a medical student would, would tail them. And um, until medical school started teaching obstetrics, it, it was people like DeLee and home birth dispensaries that trained doctors who were interested in attending birth. Right. And in the beginning, you talk about how these doctors really took a conservative approach. Like you said, this mentality of that C-sections were a last resort, that you wanted to do everything to just let nature take its course. And so that a C-section could be avoidable, but yet, and then... And then things began to change and doctors begin to insert themselves. And so when did that start? And because you started, I, th I think it's really important to talk about all the birth interventions that happened along with C-sections. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about the rise, what these doctors began to do and how, how their view of birth began to shift. Well, the, the watchword for doctors, they referred to the obstetricians who really took it seriously. They, they, they called it watchful waiting. That was their phrase for what they did, that they didn't interfere, that they patiently sat by women's bedsides, they cheered them on, they held their hands, but they were there in case anything went wrong. So they referred to it as watchful waiting. Um, what many historians point to as a turning point was a very famous article in the in the premier issue of the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in 1920 that was called the Prophylactic Forceps Operation. And it was authored by the doctor I mentioned earlier, Joseph DeLee, who opened that home birthing service and who was a professor at Northwestern University where he taught obstetrics. And he advocated in that article um, really um, uh, 
treating birth as a pathological process, he said, that women can be harmed by childhood, by childbirth. You have to be more proactive. And he recommended uh, many things. He recommended um, using forceps prophylactically to get the baby out, um, not wait for the woman to push the baby out, use, use outlet forceps to get the baby out. He recommended always giving a woman an episiotomy to widen the birth canal. Um, he recommended anesthesia. He had a whole series of activities that, that he thought doctors should do. Women's pubic hair was shaved. I mean, it's, it's almost like medieval, the list of things as I, I was, I was going through these chapters in your book. Right. Um, and it, and, the, and it's also often pinpointed that, that Delee did this. Now, the truth is, though, um, Delee, we have to also think about what was going on then. This was a class-based society. Um, Delee ran this home birthing service that literally had one of the best records of safety in the entire world. Even European doctors admitted that. Um, and his watchword there was non-interference. You go there, you practice cleanliness, you make sure everything is scrubbed down, um, and uh, you practice watchful waiting. And you are highly trained in case a woman needs any kind of help. On the other hand, he also had a clientele who were incredibly wealthy. And he, in order to fund his home birthing service, he charged them extraordinary amounts of money. I mean, eye-popping amounts of money to attend their births. So we're talking in the late 19th century, he would charge them $1,500. I've seen the bills in his records, which in that era, you know, we're talking about a doctor attending a birth for tens of thousands of dollars. That was the equivalent. Um, And so he, he treated them differently. And a lot of what he recommended was because of the class dichotomy. Um, he ended up at the end of his life, and I, you know, I've seen the letters that he's written, um, really, really regretting what he'd done. And, and even in 1940, he was saying, he died in 1944, um, in, in 1940, he gave a speech saying nature's methods are the best. So here's a guy who's pointed to to this day, you know, this is the guy who sped labor along, who, who advocated for all these all this interference, he frankly would be appalled at what um, what he that people point to him as causing all this. Um, he probably would deny it. He certainly would be appalled at the kind of C section rate we would have. So you know there are all kinds of cultural reasons why these things happened. Right, and you talk about how important uh, class was and and wealthy women and their influence on birth. So I was wondering if we could kind of shift the conversation to talk about that because you tell a really fascinating story about Jackie Kennedy that I never knew about her C-sections and how that really made C-section, it shifted it so it became the norm in our public consciousness. Could you tell us about that? Because I, I was unaware of that. Maybe it's because it's not my generation. Well, before before the 1960s, um, or even before, yeah, before the early 1960s, if cesarean section was mentioned at all um, in, a, in a news article, in a magazine, it would always be accompanied by a definition, because the assumption was most people didn't know what cesarean section meant. So it always explained that it was an abdominal surgery in order to remove the baby from the womb. Um, so it would always have a, a definition attached. The first time cesareans came to the mainstream public eye was Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy was pregnant during uh, the 1960 uh, presidential election and during the campaigning. And Americans were aware that she was pregnant. 
And, uh, you know, they were a young couple. They were beautiful. So more than I mean, all all presidential candidates are in the public eye, but they were in the public eye in a special way because they were very attractive and charismatic. And so there was a lot of attention. Plus, he was young. He had a small daughter. His wife was pregnant. So there was a lot of attention on that. Um, What wasn't known at the time was that Jackie Kennedy had a very, very um, fraught reproductive history. She had previously given birth to a stillborn daughter. She had she had had a miscarriage. Um, Caroline Kennedy was born by cesarean section. And um, when she was pregnant with John Jr., the doctor, because the rule was once a cesarean, always a cesarean, because in that era, the surgery was was cut. The cut was in such a way that it could be the scar could be prone to rupture in subsequent um, labors. We cut, we, doctors perform the cut completely differently today. The scar is much stronger. The chance of rupture is virtually non-existent. But then there was a significant chance, a significant enough chance that doctors just decided once you had a cesarean, you had another cesarean. So Jackie Kennedy um, went into labor. And of course, this was national news. And she went into labor early. The baby wasn't due until, um, I don't remember the exact dates, but well into December. And uh, the the C-section had been scheduled for mid-December, but she went into labor around Thanksgiving at the end of November. Um, And it wasn't publicized at the time, but it was a hemorrhage. She began to bleed. Um, the placenta began to peel away from the uterine wall. And so she had a C-section. And it became national news that she had a C-section. The baby survived. And um, then be- people became aware of C-sections. And, and uh, the first lady, uh, she wasn't the first lady then, but it was known that the, the person who was going to be the first lady had had a C-section. And so it became more of a mainstream thing. A lot of articles after the birth explaining what a C-section was, a lot explaining about, um, you know, assuring women you don't have to worry. Jackie Kennedy went through it. So uh, a lot of women's magazines, newspapers wrote about cesarean sections because of that birth. And then there was some backlash, too, with her following births. Yeah, um, when, uh, let's see, so so um, John Jr. was born in 1960, and then in 1963, 1962, she became pregnant again, 1963, she, she was due again to give birth, and that baby, um, again, she had very, very problematic pregnancies, every one of them. Um, she ended up having five pregnancies and only two surviving children, Caroline and John Jr. Um, when she was pregnant again in 1963, once again, she began to hemorrhage. But this time she began to hemorrhage even earlier than she had with John Jr. And um, the baby was born by emergency cesarean section because once the placenta begins to abrupt, she again, she had an abrupted placenta, um, the baby is not going to survive. So um, they did an emergency cesarean section. The baby was severely premature and only lived for two days. And it was um, a national tragedy. I mean, the entire country mourned. It was um, it was horrifying. Yeah. And and what's so amazing is that even despite that, and even, you know, that starting to raise awareness about how, in fact, dangerous cesarean sections were in the span of how many decades has it been, you know, a half a century, we now have 
C-section, how do we come to a, a point where C-section is now seen as equivalent to vaginal birth? Well, that's what's so we, astounding to me, Jackie, because, you know, my husband, my husband was born in 1978. He was born by C-section. And I didn't realize until I read your book just how, you know, it was coming more into the consciousness with, with Jackie Kennedy and, and women's magazines reporting on it back then. But it was still really rare well into the 70s, even even before my husband was born, it was still relatively uncommon. So what's happened in the past oh, few decades that has, has shifted everything? It was it was extraordinarily rare. In fact, when I interviewed women about their experiences with cesareans, the women who gave birth by cesarean in the 1970s, especially the early 1970s, were still angry about it. And I'm talking about interviewing them 40 years later. Um, and they still felt like it was unnecessary. They weren't prepared for it. Because when you went in to give birth in the early 1970s, it never even occurred to you that you might need a cesarean. But very quickly, as you, as you describe, by the mid-1980s, women anticipated the distinct possibility that they might have a cesarean and not being, you know, and being prepared for it, being mentally prepared that it might be a possibility. So we went, in a very brief period of time, we really ended up normalizing cesarean sections. And once doctors anticipate it's a possibility, once women accept it's a possibility, you know, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when you start redefining risk, what happened was with the onus of risk, I mean, cesarean section has always been about risk. Um, but it used to be that the risk was on the cesarean, you avoided it because the cesareans were of such great risk, that you didn't put a woman in jeopardy with a cesarean, because you couldn't do anything about the infection, you couldn't do anything if there was a hemorrhage. What happened was, um, between roughly 1970 and 19, mid 1980s, the onus of risk was shifted to vaginal birth. And if I was to blame any one thing, it would be the electronic fetal monitor. Wow. Tell tell me more about that. Well, the era that I described to you talking about Jackie Kennedy, the 1960s birth was in the headlines a lot. It was in the headlines a lot because of Jackie Kennedy. It was also in the headlines a lot because there was a nationwide campaign to prevent birth defects, which was very effective, but also made people worry about birth. Because... Well, by the way, sorry, I need to stop you here, because that, that was one of the really interesting things I didn't know about. You talk about birth defects, but at the time, too, there's also a nation of women, pregnant women, who are smoking all throughout their pregnancies. So there's a connection there, too, as well, right? Yeah, let me explain. In fact, that's so important to explain why did Jackie Kennedy have such a terrible reproductive history. What was not known to the public at the time, and she insisted on it being kept a secret, um, she wouldn't even allow photographs to appear in the archives of her smoking. She was a chain smoker from the time she was a teenager until the day she died. And she died very young. Um, she, you know, she was only 32 years old when Kennedy was elected, when she gave birth to, um, when Kennedy died, she was only 32 years old, um, when she gave birth to her son, Patrick. Um, and she, she was a smoker her entire life, a chain smoker, a three pack a day smoker. And of course, then there was no research about the effect of smoking on the fetus, on the pregnancy. And we know now everything that every problem Jackie Kennedy had, abrupted placenta, premature birth, stillbirth, all of it um, can be traced to smoking when you're pregnant. 
So what was really interesting to me was that um, cesareans became normalized, not in the sense that there were a whole lot of cesareans. I mean, when Jackie Kennedy gave birth, the cesarean rate still hovered between three and four percent. It was still very low in the in the early 1960s. Um, but the fact that it came to public view because of her uh, because of her problematic births, which were p- most likely, of course, we can never know definitively, but most likely caused by her very, very heavy smoking habit, um, is one way that that smoking indirectly led to the normalization of cesarean sections because it brought cesareans into the public eye because it happened to such a famous woman. Right. And other so, people also suffered from these ills from smoking, too, w- with regard to their pregnancies. Absolutely. There's there's many there's many um, in in literature. I I talk in the book, too, about uh, Marie Kilalea, who wrote two very great bestsellers about her family. She had a daughter who was born very prematurely with cerebral palsy. She, too, and in the you know, her daughter was born in the late 1940s. Um, She had four four children, four surviving children and a, a dozen pregnancies. And she, too, had very problematic reproductive history. And she doesn't talk about it in her books. But, oh, my goodness, I, I, I talk about how in those books, cigarettes are almost like another member of the family. I mean, yeah, every day. Like she goes to the doctor's office and like the, you know, the doctor smoking and right. Yeah. And right. Exactly. And she talks about with her very last birth where the baby did survive. Because of her problematic birth, the doctor made her stay in bed the entire pregnancy. People had to carry her downstairs if she wanted to leave the bedroom. She wasn't allowed to walk for nine months. And in the book, she even talks, yes, people people hopped to when I needed anything, if I needed a cigarette, if I needed a match. So here she is pregnant, and they're, and they're so worried about the baby surviving, and she's writing about how important smoking was, people bringing her cigarettes while she's lying in bed pregnant. So that's how little we knew about the effect of cigarettes on, on um, fetuses and pregnancies, right. pregnancy outcome. And I think it's, you know, it's so ironic, too, because just as we as a society became lived in this bubble where smoking was normal and smoking through pregnancy was normal and we didn't even think about the consequences, this is the very situation in which we find ourselves now with C-sections. We are in this bubble. So let's talk about, because you asked about the 1960s. So what happened in the 1960s? There was the Kennedy births um, that began to bring cesareans to the public eye. There was also this nationwide campaign run by the March of Dimes that had just, they had just found an inoculation for polio. So the March of Dimes, which was focused on on a cure for polio, shifted to trying to bring down the number of birth defects, which became a very um, high-profile public health campaign. So even though that's a very good thing to campaign about to prevent birth defects, it still brought birth into the public eye as something you need to really worry about. Right. Um, and, And because women were told you have to watch every single behavior, you must assume in the second, you know, you must assume um, in the first half of your menstrual cycle that you're pregnant. You have to assume that you're pregnant. You can't assume that you're not because those, you know, your behaviors can be so important to the development of your fetus. So there was that. There was also um, the publicity about thalidomide, which was a supposedly a safe sedative that was given to pregnant women on many different continents. Um, And it turned out that it had a horrific side effect and that if it was taken during the first trimester of pregnancy, 
it affected fetal development in horrifying horrifying ways. Depending on which day you took it and where the fetus was in that stage of development, it would affect um, the development of ears. It would develop develop the, the it would affect the development of the anus. It would affect the development of the limbs. So that babies were born with their hands growing out of their shoulders, their feet growing out of their hips, um, all because all caused by thalidomide, and that was in the headlines. There was also a German measles epidemic in 1965, and we all know now rubella is a very minor illness, usually a childhood illness. But if you get German measles in the first trimester of pregnancy, it can have as horrific an effect on the fetus as thalidomide. So that was also in the, all this happened in the 1960s. So everyone was very, very worried about birth. Um, and the discussions about birth in, in magazines, in, in newspapers, especially in women's magazines, was how um, it was all very frightening, very frightening for women. So when the uh, electronic fetal monitor came on the scene in 1968, ostensibly to keep watch over the fetus every single minute of labor, it was adopted before it was tested even once for efficacy. Hospitals adopted it all over the country. And we're still seeing the legacy of that today and all sorts of other interventions. And so wh why hasn't why is this still in practice? That's what I want to know. Like a lot of the things that you're talking about, you talk about induction um, in the book and, and the role that that played in increasing the C-section rate. And we have studies now showing that induction is not a good thing for mothers or babies, and yet it continues to persist. We have, as a, you know, when I was in the hospital and I wanted to have a natural birth, I had to fight to not have an electronic fetal monitor. And so why do we still have these things in the hospital? Why are we still trying to intervene? Well, the big problem with the electronic fetal monitor is that it's become the standard of care. So doctors are very, they've been, we have a couple generations of obstetricians now who have been trained on how to use the electronic, electronic fetal monitor, ostensibly how to read the monitor strips. So they're very uncomfortable not using it. Um, when you look at the graph of how the cesarean section rate suddenly went way up very quickly, it started exactly with the introduction of the fetal monitor and went way up. And what was happening was that the monitor, before they did any test, it was eight years between the time it was introduced and the time that they first tested women when they randomized them, that some women at random got the fetal monitor, other women at random got what women had always gotten intermittently a doctor would listen to the fetal heartbeat with a stethoscope. Um, until they did that test in 1976, eight years after the introduction of the monitor in, in, uh, in 1968, what was happening was that with the monitor, um, doctors began to see dips in the heart rate that they had never been able to hear with the fetal stethoscope, and they got very scared. And the guy who invented the monitor, Edward Hahn, an obstetrician at Yale University, realized in a couple of years, his famous quote was, they're dropping the knife with each drop in the fetal heart rate. In other words, every wow. time they got scared, yeah, every time they got scared by what the monitor was telling them, they would rush a woman back to do a cesarean section rate. And in a 10-year period, you saw the cesarean section rate between 19, between 1970 and 1984, the cesarean section rate rose 455%. Um, 
almost exclusively, um, the, the huge leap anyway, um, between 1970 and 1980, due to the fetal monitor, because doctors really, um, you know, they got very scared by what the monitor was telling them. That's just blown away. Say that one more time, Jackie. Between 1970 and 1984? 455%. The cesarean rate went from 4.5% to, oh, I don't remember the exact. It was like 26, 27%. It's now at 33. Now now it's at, well, the height was 33%. Um, 2015, it was 31.9%. So it's receding at a glacial pace very 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 slowly but yeah 455 percent in just that 14 that 14 year period um and what about and what about inductions like how much of that also has had a role because what's so amazing is i i mean living here in la i don't think i mean i would say out of like eight out of the nine births that i hear about someone is still is being induced it's just become like a matter of practice you know I'll tell you what one doctor who was trained in the 1970s um, uh, when she saw all this happen and she's, you know, she saw the monitor come on board and and her most telling comment to me was she said, if you want a normal birth, then you want to go into labor spontaneously. She said, you are the your best friend when you're in labor is a spontaneous labor. You don't let yourself get induced. Um, in fact, the, the three major ways to avoid a cesarean section is don't let them induce you unless it's medically indicated and ask them very carefully what the medical indication is and really you know, make sure you're making an informed decision. The second thing is to labor as long as you can away from the hospital. And the third, because babies take a long time to be born, and there's no reason you can labor at home and be a lot more comfortable than go to the hospital. So labor as long as you can at home. And the third thing is pick your provider very, very carefully. And if you're comfortable with a midwife, they're very well trained. They are the experts in spontaneous vaginal birth. If you're comfortable with a midwife, if you're comfortable with a birthing center, go with a midwife or go with a family doctor. Many family doctors do births and they are not trained as surgeons. And, um, you know, as another doctor said to me, the do- if the doctor can do the surgery, well, then they're more likely to do surgery. Choose a family doctor who, who attends births. Choose a midwife. They don't perform cesarean sections. Um, and there's really no reason, even the World Health Organization says, our cesarean section rate should be between 5 and 10%. Are there any Anything? countries that have that five and ten percent? <laughs> well, I mean, this is this. We're talking about something pervasive. I mean, it's it seems like it started in America and then it's really spread across the industrialized world. And it did start in the U.S. The the big spike started in the U.S. You're absolutely right. Um, and uh, there are actually uh, countries now that have quite a bit higher rates than the U.S. does. Brazil has the highest rate in the world. China, China. also has a very high rate. Yep. Mexico has a high rate. Um, the Netherlands, um, for many years until recently, was able to keep their cesarean rate very low. Their rate, the last time I looked, was 16%, which, you know, we you know we would love to be at a 16% rate here. But the fact that 
that the Netherlands, where where home birth is a norm there, where midwives are the gatekeepers, you don't see an obstetrician in the Netherlands unless an, uh, unless a midwife decides you're high risk and sends you to an obstetrician. The fact that the Netherlands have seen um, a spike in their cesarean rate really shows that, um, yes, this has become a phenomenon around the world. And, you know, it, the people who look at it, there are many people who are concerned about it. There's no question. Yeah. And I, you know, I so appreciate the advice you gave for those of us who, who are really concerned about this. And when we are having our own children, and we want to avoid a C-section, but I, you know, I feel like we have to talk about the other part of the equation that's happening now, which is mother's choice, right? I mean, like, you are seeing now a lot of people who are actually choosing to have C-sections for first time births. And so I don't even know how to ask this. I mean, how do we begin to normalize birth in a culture where, you know, a lot of people now see this as as their right or, you know, that or the demands that we have in the modern day world that people just don't have the time to wait or don't know how to wait anymore? Well, th I mean, that's certainly a part of the story. This is a complicated story. And certainly yeah. part of the story is that women nowadays, you know, I mean, I, I came of age when natural childbirth, you aspired to natural childbirth, and you felt empowered, and it was exciting. And, you know, that that's the way women talked about birth. And, you know, I, I did it. And, you know, now, uh, you know, th things have really changed and women women are in the workforce and you know a lot of the rhetoric if you look at women's magazines in the 1990s a lot of the rhetoric is you know i've proven myself i don't have to go through this horrific activity in order to uh, prove myself and you know women now they they're full-time workers they're full-time mothers why squeeze another exhausting activity in your life when you can carefully plan it through induction, um, when you can sit there with an epidural and relax and read and converse normally? So certainly a lot of the rhetoric around birth and a lot of the view around birth has changed um, because women's lives have changed and the reality of women's lives have changed. There's, there's no doubt about it. But as to your question about choice, um, from what I've looked at and from the people who've really looked at how common maternal choice cesareans are, most of them will tell you that very few women, and there certainly are some, and a lot of them actually are, are physicians. There are, there are um, far more higher percentage of obstetricians who choose elective cesarean sections for no medical reason at all than there are in the population at large. So that's one of the problems that, that um, you know, we thought that having more female obstetricians would um, steer people away from more medicalized birth. But birth has really become much more medicalized as more women went into obstetrics, mainly because they're acculturated the same way male doctors are, but they speak with a dual authority. They speak not only as um, as well-trained physicians, but they speak as women who either have given birth um, or who intend at some point, hope at some point to give birth. And a lot of them are very, you know, they'll steer women to the kind of treatment that they want for themselves, whether it's the epidural, whether, you know, they've had an elective cesarean section. So there's certainly been studies that showed that female obstetricians are more likely than the population at large to choose elective uh, cesareans for themselves. But for women at large, it seems to be really a very small number. And I think it's more the conversation around cesarean sections and choice that's the problem. And usually it's doctors who will raise it. Doctors will say, look, it's a woman's choice. And the, the minute you 
invoke choice. It kind of shuts down conversation because the implication is you're taking choice away from women. So I think it's more been used as a red herring. I think that there are very, very few women, uh, people who have looked at this and actually done systematic interviews estimate that about 1% of women actually choose cesareans without any medical indication at all, which is really a very small number. Um, and uh, it, the, the whole choice thing is used more as a way of shutting down conversations about our high cesarean section rate and the very real dangers that it poses for not just women, but for infants as well. Yeah. So let's talk about that because, you know, if we don't do anything, what's the future we're looking at? Like, wh why, why did you write this book? I know I asked you that in the beginning, Jackie, but for the people listening to this, for doctors who, who need to wake up to what is going on, why, why should we care that we have, a, you know, one in three people giving birth via C-section? Well, for one thing, I mean, we, we view this as something that's good for babies. Well, at least it's good for babies. We can get them out of there quick and, you know, they, they won't necessarily suffer any trauma. But the truth is that labor is really, really good for babies. Um, for one thing, the hormones of labor are instrumental in things like last minute lung development and last minute brain development. Going through the birth canal is physiologically so important for a number of reasons. One, babies have spent nine months soaked in amniotic fluid, including breathing the amniotic fluid in and out, um, which means that when they go through the birth canal, the amniotic fluid is squeezed from their lungs and they are born ready to breathe. 100% of babies born by C-section are born with wet lung. That is, their lungs are full of amniotic fluid. It's one of the reasons that um, epidemiologists point to as why we have an epidemic of asthma and allergies among children, because they're born with problematic lungs, and um, it becomes a lifelong problem for some of those children who are born by cesarean section. So it's not good for babies. If we can avoid a cesarean, um, another reason is that it's very important to expose babies to vaginal flora. Um, we hear more and more about the human microbiome, which is simply all the trillions of bacteria that we carry inside of us and on us. And we know now that babies born by cesarean section have a very different microbiome, even if they're breastfed, than babies born vaginally. And that difference persists for up to a year. Now, we're just beginning to study what the consequences of that different microbiome may be, but that lack of exposure to the vaginal microbiome, uh, the suspicion now is that it could have lifelong consequences. So, you know, we think about it being better for the baby or rescuing a baby. Well, no, there can be lifelong health consequences that are not good for the infant. Um, and what for about the for mother, the mom? Yeah, for the mother as well. First of all, um, cesareans can cause any kind of major abdominal. We're talking major abdominal surgery here. This is not um, this is not a minor operation. This is surgery that cuts through every layer, including muscle. Major abdominal surgery. So recovery time is longer. Um, uh, 
many many doctors describe to me that that sometime wound wound doesn't heal that mothers come back and back and back over and over for doctor's visits with packing with antibiotics in terrible pain oozing trying because they because their wound has become infected so it's a it's a major procedure it's also a major procedure down the road too because uh any abdominal surgery can cause surgical adhesions in the future, which are very, very painful. So you can get bowel obstructions in the years to come from those from the surgical adhesions. The more cesareans you've had, the more likely you are to have complications. It can also mean very serious complications in in births in the future. Uh, the most serious complication that doctors point to is placenta accreta which can be deadly for the mother. Um, placenta accreta is when the placenta in future pregnancies adheres abnormally to the uterus. And what happens usually is that the placenta grows into the previous scar from the, from the previous cesarean. And once the baby is born, the placenta doesn't release and the mother starts to hemorrhage. 7% of mothers who suffer an accreta die in the United States. Um, and uh, almost 100% of them will lose their uterus so the doctor can stop the bleeding. Uh, it used to be that one in 30,000 births in the U.S. in the 1950s was a birth that saw an accreta. Today, it's one in 533 births. 55-fold um, increase in accretas just because of all the cesareans we're doing. Um, so that's just one example of how harmful this surgery. I, I had doctors say to me, very straightforwardly, we are killing women with all these cesareans. And of course, these were people who had seen an accreta, had seen women die. One doctor who I interviewed uh, for my book uh, had just seen a woman die, and his were very succinct words, he said to me, 72 units of blood, the entire hospital stopped. It still, it still was with him that this young woman died from having a previous cesarean and suffering from a placenta, placenta accreta. And it's not just the accretas. Um, placentas grow abnormally in a uterus that is scarred. So it can be a problem in many ways for future births. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's astounding and it's so sad. And I think, you know, you look at the hard medical evidence, but I think it's also important, and maybe we could just talk about this in closing too, you know, what does it mean to have a world in which this many children are brought into the world through surgery? I mean, yeah. what, what are we looking at in terms of the future race? And are you, are you hopeful, Jackie? I mean, I, I, it's, your book is so astounding that I think anyone who reads it would just wake up and say, we have to change this. This is insane. But, you know, I just don't know. How do you feel? And, uh, well, you know, in, in me telling you the entire story of, of, of the history of childbirth, just in the United States, I mean, the United States is a relatively young country compared to other countries. But when I was describing in the 19th century, how social birth was, um, I think it, first of all, it makes a real difference for women if they can observe births before they give birth themselves. There's less fear involved. Do you understand the process? 
Um, one of the things that always puzzled me, I mean, I would never say childbirth is easy, but it always puzzled me that it was described foremost as being painful. Um, I was fortunate enough to be at several births before I gave birth myself, and I had a wonderful role model. My friends, I've never been at a birth where anyone used any kind of pain medication, so it never occurred to me that I would need pain medication just because I had observed other women. They were great role models. They relaxed through their contractions. Um, and I just thought, oh, that's the way you act during birth. You just pose, you know, you close your eyes and you pose relaxation. Now, on the other hand, when my friend who did that for me, who was my model, came to my birth, I remember opening one eye and saying, oh, my God, I can't believe you did this four times because she did this by. <laughs> so, so I remember just from saying that, that, oh, my goodness, this is something else. These are, you know, this is really work. But again, that's why they call it labor. If someone had said to me, if I didn't know the culture and if I didn't know the culture defined it as painful, I would have just said it was the most exhausting thing I ever did in my life. To me, it was like running a marathon that you couldn't get out of, that, you know, no matter how you felt, you couldn't say, let me slow down, let me rest. That was birth to me. Um, and so, I, so I, I think that if women had the opportunity to observe each other, there'd be less around birth. So I think it's the way we talk about it. It's the way we characterize it. There's so much fear and mystery around childbirth that, of course, you know, you expect that you need all these things to make it work when you don't. Right, right. And so do you, are you hopeful about the future? Are you hopeful about the culture changing? At least among the medical community? You know, it's so funny because if you had asked me that, in 1990 or 1985 or 1979, I would have said absolutely. But I've seen birth become even more medicalized. I mean, the fact that the cesarean section rate has gone up as high as it's gone, I, you know, I, I don't... <laughs> I certainly, you know, I have suggestions in my book about what we could do. For one thing, I think midwives should be on the faculty of all medical schools. And right alongside obstetricians, they should be teaching that anyone who's studying to be an obstetrician should also be learning from midwives. And that's not the I, norm at all. No, it's okay. not the norm at all. And I, and I think, I mean, certainly in some hospitals, they had midwives on staff, but far fewer than even in the mid-1990s, mainly because of malpractice rates. We haven't talked about that at all. Right. That's a, maybe we'll have this part two conversation yeah, <laughs> closer exactly. to when the book comes out. But but they've they've backpedaled from that because midwives see a lot fewer patients than doctors, and yet their their malpractice rates are just as high as obstetricians, but they don't bring in as much money to the hospital. So a lot of hospitals have gotten rid of their midwifery staff. So there are a lot fewer doctors being trained now by midwives than even in the mid 1990s. So yeah, we, um, and, and frankly, um, obstetricians are, are, you know, you're, you're trained in pathologies. Um, and it's midwives who are trained in normal spontaneous birth. So that's why doctors should be trained by both. Both are important sets of training. And obstetricians don't get that kind of training. Right. And I see that all the time among my own friends and even myself. Like I know so many people who want a natural birth. And then once you get into that hospital environment, it is very, very difficult. I mean, I I wanted to have fully unmedicated births with my children. My first daughter was 26 hours of hard labor. I wound up having an epidural. I mean, once you're there in that setting, and I actually had a midwife. Um, 
attend my birth. She was my primary caregiver throughout my pregnancy at the hospital, which was wonderful. But, you know, it's you need a lot of support. And and in retrospect, you know, I know that I needed I needed that culture of women around me. You know, I needed that party. I probably needed about like four or five more hands on me than than I had at the time. You're absolutely right. In fact, studies show that just having a woman in the room um, makes a big difference in terms of shorter labors. And yeah, just having that kind of support and that kind of confidence from someone. And that's why I say too, labor as long as you can at home. Because a hospital, it's an unfamiliar environment. Um, We know from animal labor that if an animal is in labor and there is a predator around, labor stops so that the mother can get to a safe place. Think about how frightening and unusual and odd hospitals are. There are a lot of reasons. You know, there's the beep of the monitor. There's the odd lights. There are all kinds of people coming in and sticking their hand up you. Um, There are a lot of reasons why labor would take longer um, just because you're in in an unfamiliar environment. So that in itself can slow labor down, which is why I say labor as long as you can at home. You're going to be much better off than going to the hospital and having labor slow down. It becomes more painful. It becomes more frightening. Yeah, they're they're all kind. We just don't treat we don't treat childbirth, and we don't assume childbirth is going. I mean, there's so many more reasons to think that childbirth is going to go right than there are that it's going to go wrong. But unfortunately, now our presumption is that we have to be on guard for all those things that can go wrong. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I for one, just living in an urban environment where I've lived, you know, especially as a young pregnant or expecting mom, I lived in a series of apartments that were not very desirable to stay at home and labor in. Um, I would like to see, especially in, in the cities, like hospitals just become more relaxing places to give birth and not have that culture of fear around them too, just as an option, since so many women do feel more comfortable in a hospital now anyway, like, let's make that more of more of a, uh, I don't know, just a supportive environment. I, but I would like to see that change. I agree with you completely. But here's the irony of that, Jennifer. And there was the thought behind um, birthing rooms, that it would be much more comfortable, very home-like. The problem is, and again, it goes back to the fetal monitor. Once you have something like the fetal monitor as the default, and I'm not saying fetal monitors are bad in every single birth, but when that becomes the default that every woman is hooked up to a monitor, first of all, then she's tethered to a bed and she can't walk around. Labor is going to go a whole lot faster if you're out of that bed walking around between contractions. Um, But once you have that as the default, the implication is that you're looking for trouble. And it adds a whole level to the birth that you might not necessarily need. So yes, there's, there's, there's so much in the, in the, in the birthing culture that we need to change. And um, frankly, electronic fetal monitors have completely warped the malpractice rate. It's not, you know, people point to malpractice and that's why we have to do more cesareans and doctors must practice defensive medicine because if you perform the cesarean, you're covered. But the truth is that spike in C-sections that I talked about between 1970 and 1980, huge increase. The first um, lawsuit for failure to perform a cesarean was not filed until the mid-1980s after the spike in C-sections. And frankly, it was the fetal monitor that caused that entire warping of the malpractice environment because now lawyers could point to a spot on a page and say that's where the baby was harmed. And the truth is that those, I mean, 
everyone reads the fetal monitor strip differently. The people who are the most expert in them can only agree on the meaning of a strip 68% of the time. That is not a good record. And th those are the expert experts agree 68% of the time. So the fact that a lawyer can go into a courtroom now and say, this is where the baby was damaged. And our cerebral palsy rate has not gone down even a smidgen as the C-section rate has gone up. Cerebral palsy is not caused by a birth accident. It's, it, we know now it's, it's caused by um, development in utero for whatever reason. Um, and yet we keep getting these extraordinarily, extraordinary lawsuits that seem to be without merit. But that is why, again, why doctors keep that rate high because of malpractice threats. Yeah. Well, Jackie, if anything is going to change around this culture of fear and risk and I don't know, our society just completely losing our mind about <laughs> about birth. It is because of your book. So I, I just want to congratulate you again on a brilliant work. Um, I hope everyone is going to read this. I hope this is going to be required reading in medical schools. Um, and I know our audience is probably wondering by now where they can read your book. So tell us about when it comes out and where they can follow your work. It's coming out in the spring, in March or April. Um, it's going to be published by Johns Hopkins University Press, and it will be called, uh, the title of the book is Cesarean Section, An American History of Risk, Technology, and Consequence. Um, they can get it anywhere. They can get it on Amazon. They can get it, uh, it will be, it's going to come out simultaneously in hardback, and there'll be an electronic version of it. You can get it on Amazon, download it to your Kindle. Um, it will, so they, they can find it, they can find it anywhere. Wonderful, Jackie. And are you on social media? I'm not. And obviously I should be, shouldn't no, I? No, you, you say that with a big plus. I actually was just on social media hiatus until this show came out. And um, I highly recommend it. You know, it, I find it very hard to be an author and work on long form projects. And then as, as a historian, I mean, the amount of research you do is not even comparable to what I do. I, it's hard to immerse myself in that world when I'm also distracted by social media. So... I don't know. No, I don't think you have any apologies necessary. I just, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Uh, well, they can, I, I work at Ohio University. I'm a professor at Ohio University. I'm in the Department of Social Medicine. They can, um, they can, they can find me through my department and they can also, they can also Google. I mean, I, my, my author's title is Jacqueline H. Wolf. And if they just Google Jacqueline H. Wolf, they can, they can find all kinds of ways to find my work and to find the articles I've written. And your and... other two brilliant books, which I highly recommend as well. And I will post links to them on the show page. Jennifer, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. And I just wanted to add one thing as you may be thinking about what we can do on a personal level and as a society to confront the C-section epidemic you just heard about. Jackie mentioned in, in this show that if there was one pivotal turning point in the dramatic rise in C-sections, it was the introduction of the electronic fetal monitor in the 1970s. So I just wanted to leave you with this eye-opening statistic that she sent my way after we recorded the interview. So the first randomized controlled trial published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in 1976 assigned high risk, not low risk, but high risk pregnant women 
at random to be either electronically monitored during labor or monitored monitored intermittently with a fetal stethoscope. And the outcome was that the stethoscope group had a C-section rate of 6.5% and the fetal monitor group had a C-section rate of 16.8%. The fetal monitor group had no better outcomes for infants. There were the same rates of stillbirth, neonatal death, and neurological disabilities, the same number of admissions to the NICU in both groups, and seven follow-up studies, one with 35,000 women, confirmed those results. So the takeaway is electronic monitoring had no better outcomes and much higher C-section rates. So the big question is, why is this still a widespread practice? All right. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you found it as thought-provoking as I did. If you don't want to miss the next one, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one. As with every episode, the resources and links for the show are available at jennifergrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damien Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.